Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. This is the word of the Lord. Those of you who have been with us a long time know that August is the month when I carefully look at every text appropriate for the coming year and have at least a title for all the sermons I'll be writing the following year. So last August, when I was pacing around in my office up there for several days, reading one of the texts and reading it and reading it and putting it on my desk and pacing and walking and thinking, what might I be saying about this next June 17th? I kept looking at the words, and he healed every sickness and every disease. And he said to the twelve, I'm giving you authority so that you may heal every sickness and every disease. It was hot, 103 degrees here in Tulsa. And I remembered when it was that hot in Texas when I was a boy. I would be taken out to my grandmother Biggs's place to help her on the farm. It had to sell off part of the farm to make it through the Great Depression. <clears throat> By this time, my grandfather had died just before I was two, and my grandmother was trying to keep up the 50 acres she had left uh, best she could. She needed help. So even when I was six and seven and eight, I was taken out to her little farm to help her. Uh, she always cooked for us, and I remember at supper time, she would have vegetables. And sometimes if the new crop hadn't gotten ready yet, we were eating the the root crops from the year before that had been kept under straw in the smokehouse, turnips, that sort of thing. And she would say to me, eat your turnips now, boy. They will cure whatever ails you. And when it was really hot, we were working out in the field. She always wore one of those big bonnets, homemade, you know, that kept the sun off of her face and her neck. And we'd get in the shade of a tree, and she'd pull that bonnet off. You could see her hair was wet from sweat. And she would say, let's go to the well and draw us a dipper full of fresh well water. It'll cure whatever ails you. So when I read this text, I thought about that. Wow, wouldn't it be wonderful to be with Jesus who could heal every sickness and every disease? Four things to think about. Number one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. The word compassion comes to us from Latin. Cum, which is with. Passus, which is suffering. But we would say it in reverse order. To suffer with. 
when Jesus saw the crowds, he suffered with them. He empathized. He felt what they were feeling. This is such an important part of the gospel. He felt what they were feeling. Late Thursday, Gail and I went down to check on my mom in Texas. Um, my brother and his wife have decided they want to buy this little family farm. And my sister and I have agreed to that. My mom will never be able to live there again. And so uh, we were helping clean out all these personal things of my mother and father going through them. My mother is not dead, but she's living in an assisted living center now and uh, is very far along in her dementia. So we were going through all these different things. And, of course, it brings back all kinds of memories. I knew what we were going to be doing this weekend. And so when I wrote the sermon earlier in the week, you know, it was on my mind, on my heart. I was thinking about July revival. We're just two weeks away, just two weeks away now. And I was remembering revivals in little home church where I grew up. Uh, how the boys would play tag out around the front of the church late before the services were getting ready to start. And finally, when one of the men would give a little whistle, and it's time now, and I'd go running into the church. My grandmother, Big, sat down close to the front because she didn't hear so well the last years of her life. She sat right down close to the front, and she always saved a seat for me, and I'd go rushing in and sit by her, and I could feel the sweat running down my back, you know, from having played chase for the last 30 minutes. But often, just outside the windows, there was a new, fresh grave. Someone in the community had died, and the little cemetery was just right there. Fresh flowers now being baked by hot August sun. Or we'd hear about somebody who was sick, uh, someone we should all be praying for. Uh, all kinds of disappointments and frustrations, and this one lost his job, and that one didn't get hired, and that one got passed over for a promotion that he thought was going to come to him or to her, and so on. You know? And so as I thought about this early in the week, I thought, now, what would we have sung that would have conveyed this idea that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. He suffered with them. And I thought of one. We used to sing, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong, when for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is it aught to him? Does he see? And we would sing, Oh, yes. He cares, I know he cares, his heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Number two, when he looked at them, they looked harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They needed someone 
who felt with them, who cared about them, who could do something about their predicament, needed someone bigger who could do something. My most recent issue of the New Yorker magazine arrived, and I noticed that there were a series of articles, uh, this most recent edition, called Summer Movies. Different writers uh, with the New Yorker magazine had been asked to reflect on summer movies. And I assume someone told them, think back when you were a child, because that's what all of them had done. Um, I read all the articles about these summer movies, but one I liked in particular was written by a writer named Gary Steinbrot. He was writing about 1985. He said it was the summer he became a man. He was bar mitzvahed. It was a long springtime of study, of questions and answers and questions and answers. And finally, that great day when all of his closest family were present at the synagogue and he was called forward to the bima to read from the Torah scroll. And then it was summer. School was out and the family could go to a cabin up in the Catskills where other Jewish families like to go. But he said, this was a significant moment for me. My faith community and my family were saying, you've been a little boy. Now you've become a man. Uh, The Jews have long believed that crucial time is when you're about 12 or 13. We have confirmation for our youth when they're 12, 13 years old. A, A review of everything they've learned about our faith up to this point. And that was what had happened to him in Bar Mitzvah. So he said, I was thinking about childlike things and grown-up things, and I realized for the first time, I think, that my grandparents were getting old. They were getting old. I I noticed that things we had always done up in the hills in the summer, uh, they didn't do so well. Didn't walk as fast, didn't walk as far. Slower getting up, slower sitting down. Uh, Not able to participate in as many things as they had before. And we went to see a movie called Cocoon. Remember it? It's been 22 years ago. Don Amici starred. This was about a retirement village down in Florida. And aliens from another world have come to Florida. And they promised to these older people, you can go home with us and never be sick again and Never grow any older than you are now. And Don Amici fell down on the floor and started breakdancing. Remember that? And Wilfred Brimley uh, went absolutely crazy. But here, this young man writing about what that summer meant to him. He said, what I remember about that movie is the Wilfred Brimley character who had a little grandson. And this little grandson doesn't want his grandfather to go away with these aliens. And the grandfather is saying to him, but but don't you understand? I would never be sick. I would get no older. I would live forever. Now, boy, he said, you're thinking too much. And when you think too much, things start to go awry. But Gary wrote, I guess I was thinking too much too. Because I didn't want my grandmothers and granddaddies to go away. I didn't want him to go away. Not a minute sooner than absolutely necessary. Even if it meant that 
got older and they walked slower and not as far. I didn't want them to go a minute sooner. We need each other. We need families. We need fathers to be fathers. We need mothers to be mothers. We need grandmothers and grandfathers to care. Aunts and uncles and cousins. We need family. And we are a family of faith as well. That everybody here is supposed to care genuinely about every other person here. And to see in every other face a child of God. One for whom our Lord Jesus was willing to die. One for whom God was willing to raise his son from the dead. One whom God wants to have life. Life abundant. Life everlasting. Number three. All right, we're back to that part about he healed every sickness and every disease. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, supposed to be in Fort Worth uh, to preach four times for the Central Texas Annual Conference. Uh, that morning early, I was shaving and showering, getting ready to come to church. <clears throat> and I had the little television in the bathroom going behind me. I can see it in the mirror. And the local news uh, and weather here was showing a big line of thunderstorms uh, stretching down from Amarillo to Wichita Falls. And he said, but this particular group of storms are not coming our way. Don't worry about it. They're going over Dallas-Fort Worth. <clears throat> and I was supposed to be catching a plane at 245 to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and I was supposed to be in the procession marching in to preach at 7 p.m. So when church was over, uh, I had not forgotten this, and Jason's wife, Janet, had stayed home with a sick baby that morning, so he called her and said, Janet, would you look on the computer and see what they're saying about Dad's flight? And she said, okay, it says his flight's on time. So I went on to lunch with my family. Just before we got through, Trey said, well, maybe we should check one more time, Dad. And so he called American Airlines, and they said, your flight's right on time. So I gave everybody a quick hug, and I rushed out to Tulsa Airport. <clears throat> I parked my car, got on the shuttle, got inside the terminal, went over to the uh, locator there, and punched in my numbers, and it printed out that my flight was already more than an hour late. And I asked the woman behind the desk there, uh, how good is that number? And she said, probably not very. We don't have any problems here in Tulsa. You can see the sun shining. But they backed up traffic into Dallas-Fort Worth now by two to three hours. I said, uh, give me a credit on my ticket. I've got to drive to Fort Worth. And so I grabbed my bags, and I got on the shuttle, and I got to my car, and I called Gail. I'm driving, and I called uh, uh, the person who was supposed to be meeting me at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and said, I'm driving. Trey had said, Dad, I made that drive not so long ago. If you go through Oklahoma City, there's not a stoplight between Tulsa Airport and downtown Fort Worth. He was right. I drove 300 miles. This was 2.15 by the time I left here. I was in the procession ready to walk in and preach at 7 o'clock in Fort Worth. As I started down the aisle, processing with their choir, here was a man standing right on the aisle who had been a part of my church in Beaumont 35 years ago. He and his family now live in the Fort Worth area. He was not a delegate to annual conference. He had seen the write-up in the paper and had come to hear me preach. Well, I preached four times. He was there every time sitting right on the aisle. As I would come in, he would just reach his hand out and touch me as I went by. And when I came out, as we recessed after each of the services, he was giving me one of the, you know, that was good, that was good. 
At one of the punch and cookie times after the service, uh, Ken had come up to me and said, wow, it's, it's, I love to hear you preach again and so on. Uh, I remember a story you told 20 years ago when I heard you once about a fellow. He was a professor in Montana somewhere. And I don't remember all that story, but I love that story. Do you still tell people that story? And I said, I haven't told that story in years and years, Ken, but I, I remember what you're talking about, of course. Well, anyway, I came back home, and as I started putting this sermon together Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I thought about what Ken had said. And so I Googled in the name on my computer, and here came the write-up. Jess Lair. That was his name. Jess Lair was a very successful public relations man in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He had a wife and four children. They had a beautiful big five-bedroom home. He and his wife drove very expensive automobiles, doing great. And at 35 years of age, Jess had a major heart attack. He was really frightened for about a month, and then he went back to his old habits. And three months later, he had another massive heart attack. Now, this was in the mid-60s, long before we know all the things that we've learned about heart attacks since then. His doctors said, if you do not change radically the way you're living, you will not live to be 40. They scared him for sure that time. And so Jess and his wife talked about it. And they decided they better sell this business that was demanding of him. He was putting in 16, 18-hour days. Sell the business. Sell the big, expensive house with the huge payments. Sell the two expensive cars. And let Jess see if he could save his life. Quit smoking, quit drinking, quit working 16 and 18 hour days, went back to college. He wasn't a spiritual man. He said, nobody ever talked to me about God. Nobody ever taken me to Sunday school or church. I thought maybe professors in a college know. So I picked liberal arts, college, humanities courses, started taking psychology, got a master's degree in psychology, a doctoral degree in psychology, and decided he wanted to teach psychology. Now, he'd been reading other things during this time. He was watching his diet. He was exercising more. But he'd also read in one of these government surveys. But according to the most uh, recent census at that time, people in America didn't seem to live longest in little bitty uh, rural areas or small towns, nor the biggest cities, but in communities between 25,000 and 75,000 population. Furthermore, people seemed to live longest in the United States, not when they were right on the coast or right in the great grassy midlands here, but when they lived in sight of mountains. So Jess said, I'm looking for a teaching job in a college, in a community that has somewhere between 25,000 and 75,000 people where you can see a mountain through the kitchen window. And he took a job in Bozeman, Montana, moved his family from Minneapolis to Bozeman, and he started teaching. But in one of his night courses, the first semester, he had an older man in his class who waited around one night till everyone else had left and then said, uh, Dr. Lair, I've been listening carefully to you for about eight weeks now, and I believe you're afraid you're going to die. And Jess said, well, I didn't notice it's being so apparent, but yeah, you're right. I am afraid I'm going to die. And the man said, well, guess what? I know I am, so you and I have got a lot in common. And then he said, so I want to tell you something, Dr. Lair, if you don't mind. I've been a member of AA for some years now, and I've learned a lot in that organization. 
first of all, you have to surrender your life, as much of you as you know how, to as much of God as you can comprehend. And second of all, you've got to quit talking about the weather. Then you notice how many conversations are about nothing but the weather. You see somebody at the post office, you see somebody at the ball game, you see somebody at lunch, you say, sure is hot, sure is wet, sure is dry, sure is humid. In Oklahoma, we say, well, this is Oklahoma weather. We were in, we were in Carthage, Texas yesterday, and you know what my family says? Well, this is Texas weather. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be over at Mount Sequoia in Arkansas. They'll be saying, well, that's Arkansas weather. It doesn't matter where you go. It's wet, too dry, too what? Well, he said to Jess, now, Jess, that's what most people talk about, but you and I don't have time to waste time. Let me tell you what I've learned. I've learned that if you will come at somebody right from your deepest heart, four out of five will break and run. But the one who stays is worth talking to. Now, you don't need a lot of people who will come back to you from their deepest hearts. Three, four, five. You've got three or four or five people who will listen to you when you come right from your deepest heart and come back to you from his or her deepest heart. That's all you need. And I'll be one for you. You just need three or four more. Well, Jess listened. And he started doing what this man had told him to do. And Jess wrote his first book. I ain't much, baby, but I'm all I've got. But the point of the book was, I may not have much to bring to you, but what I bring will be the real Jess. You can count on that. What I bring will be the real Jess. You and I will not talk about the weather. And Jess learned. His next book was, I ain't well, but I sure am better. And his third book was, Ain't I a wonder? Ain't you a wonder too? And then he wrote, I don't know where I'm going, but I ain't lost. I love that. Because what Jess was learning is he can heal you. He can make you well. It may not be as quickly as you want. It may not be as dramatically as you would hope. But he can heal you. He can make you well. He can make you whole. Number four. Then Jesus said, guess what? I want you to do that for everybody you meet. That is, help make them whole. I want you to do what you can do to help make them whole. And then he ends this by saying, and you don't need to be paid. You didn't pay for what you got. Dr. Eugene Peterson says that means freely you received, freely give. Mary Jane Clark has written that she and her husband wanted to go on vacation to Africa. There were places they wanted to see. And when they told their pastor they weren't going to be around for the next three weeks, they were going to Africa, he said, Oh, please, if you're anywhere near Zaire, go and see the little clinic that you've been helping support this last number of years. So they could work that out, and they went to Zaire, and they saw this little clinic. It was primitive, of course. Uh, it was not not a major American hospital, but it was a little clinic doing good work. She said she and her husband were being shown around this little clinic by the physician there. And he led them into one little ward of children. There was a little boy there who was almost lifted out of the bed by heavy traction, pulling on one of his legs. Now, she said this traction didn't look like it would in this country. We have traction on somebody. We have really nice chrome-plated weights, one pound, two pounds, or whatever. This had two bricks tied to the end of a rope. 
but it's doing the same work. A little pulley and a pin in this kid's leg. And the physician said he had a terrible leg break a few months ago. The leg was not properly set. And as he started to get well enough to walk on it again, his mother and father saw that he was walking strangely, that his legs were not the same length as they had been before. And so they invested everything they had to bring him halfway across Zaire to our little clinic. And we've reset his leg, and we've got this uh, traction on it now, and he's going to be great. He's just going to be great. What is your name? She asked the little boy. And the doctor spoke to him in his own tongue, and the little boy responded, Uwandi, Uwandi was his name. And then they noticed that in his hand he had a little plastic blue fish. And the physician said to them, one of the missionaries' children gave that to him. I would guess it's the only toy he's ever had in his life. He just holds on to it all the time. The next morning, Mary Jane and her husband decided they would make one more little trip through the clinic, speaking to people they'd met the day before, before they flew on to their next destination. And as they walked into Uwandi's room, they saw that another little boy had been put in the bed right next to his and the doctor told him this little boy had cried half the night. The clinic was strange and unfamiliar to him. But he could see all this rigging hooked on up to Uwandi. He didn't know if they were going to do that to him or not. If he was going to have a pin in his leg. If he was going to have bricks uh, pulling a rope down uh, over a pulley there. He just didn't know what to expect. And so he had cried and cried. And finally little Uwandi reached as far as he could across one bed to the other and handed that child his little blue fish. Freely you received. Freely give.